0: You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at bccfarmercity.org. Well, praise God. Welcome to church this morning. We are going to start a new series this morning. I'm going to start in John chapter 16 and verse 13. Just a little bit of context. Context is always important. Um, We are right at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. And in that last evening, he had a Passover meal with the disciples, and then he just poured himself into them right before he got arrested because he knew this is it, we're about to transition. They didn't fully understand, but they were about to get launched into a whole new level of their own ministry as they ushered in the New Testament church. Now, they did not know this in the moment. It's not what they had in mind. It's not even really what they wanted. He'd been trying to tell them, and they weren't getting it. But we're looking into, around the end of chapter 13, all the way through 17, is a picture of that night. It's one of the longest discourses we have of Jesus dealing with His disciples, and it's just packed with good stuff in that passage. But I want to jump into the middle of it in John 16, verse 13. So Jesus is speaking. He says, however, when He, capital H, the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. And I want to point out, He's not just talking to those disciples. He's talking to the church. This is the same for all of us. That's one of the Holy Spirit's primary roles in your life. He is, he's here to guide you. We're not to wander aimlessly. He will guide us into truth, which is really one of the most valuable things we can have to be able to step into any situation in life and know what's true Sometimes it's hard to put value on that. To know what's the truth about what's going on, what's the truth about the people involved, what's the truth about motivations, what's the truth about outcomes. Truth is a valuable commodity. Um, Jesus said, "The truth will make you free." Um, now, in context, it is the truth you act on, not just the truth you know, and that should make sense. But he says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Setting you up and letting you know about things to come is also a part of his ministry. And that is something that is invaluable. Now I'm not saying he'll always describe to you every detail of what's coming, but he'll let you know what you need to know. And he'll give you pictures about things to come. This is something that separates the Christian from the unsaved person. You have the Holy Spirit on the inside. It's one of the primary things Jesus came to accomplish. And I'll show you that. But spirit-led life for a Christian is very different than an unsaved person. You have something they don't have. Um, Look at verse 14. It says, He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare to you. You have a divine guide living on the inside of you. (laughs) We both can be and should be, I'll even say need to be, Aware of Him. And no matter how aware of Him you are, even in this moment, in your walk with Him, there's more. More awareness, more familiarity, more experience in walking with Him. You have a divine guide on the inside of you. Now, I'm going to jump over to Romans 8, because that's a lot of what the whole chapter is about. That's part of it. Um, And I'm going to jump around a little bit, so bear with me. But Romans 8, verse 8. I want to point something out. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So he says that if you've received Jesus as your Savior, if you've been, as Scripture says, born again, then uh, you're not in the flesh. And you might think, well, I thought I was. Kind of take a moment and go, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still in a body. I'm still in flesh. Well, that's not really what he's talking about. I, I want to show the words a little bit. Let's just pause and let's lay a, frown, a foundation proper. Um, in John 3.3, 3, that's where I get the words, born again. It was when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who did end up believing in Jesus. He's one of the Pharisees that put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But this was early in Jesus' ministry, and Nicodemus was still kind of figuring some things out, and he didn't want to take heat from his coworkers, and so he snuck off the middle of the night, and he went and found Jesus in the dark where no one could see, and he started asking him questions. And in John 3, 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think Jesus was necessarily trying to start a catchphrase that the church would then call born again. And uh, in fact, there have even been some outside the church that call Christians, you know, them born agains. It's like a nickname. I really don't think that's what Jesus was going for. He was almost in a more literal sense. He was making a point. He says, you understand what natural birth was like. Not, not that you remember yours, but you know what the process is like. But he said, here he said, uh, that's how you entered the earth. But he said, there's a second experience that you need to have. And it's just like the first one. You need to be born a second time. He, he could have said that. You need to be born a second time. You need to be born again. Well, that confused Nicodemus. In verse 4, uh, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Um, Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and uh, be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not quite following me. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, there's your natural birth, and of the spirit. He said, there's a spiritual birth you need to experience. He said, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. We got that part. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So one thing he's saying, he says, to be born of the Spirit is just as real as being born in the flesh. But you will not be able to observe it the same way. You won't be able to see a spiritual birth necessarily with your natural eyes. The way, you know, I experienced the birth of all three of my daughters with natural eyes. He said, spiritual birth is just as real, but you won't observe it the same way. So in that day, 2,000 years ago, he compared it to wind. He said, you can't see wind, but you feel the effects of it. He says, you know it's there, you know it's real, but you can't see it. Well, the same as with spiritual birth. He says, you, you can't see it necessarily, but you'll, can I say, see the effect of it. It causes changes in people. He said, it's very much a real thing. If you jump down to a, maybe one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, um, John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. I want to talk about that just a moment. That word, life. Now, this might ring a bell for many of you. It's the Greek word zoe. All right. But I looked it up in Vine's dictionary. It means life as God has it. Another way to say it, it's the God kind of life. You can technically have life and not have the God kind of life. You're having a different life. Jesus said, I've came to give you a different kind of life, the God kind of life, life as God has it. Now, I said this before, you know, what is everlasting life? What is everlasting, Zoe? It's not just, a lot of people read that and they think, well, he's talking about living forever. Jesus came so that we could live forever forever. Well, that's not exactly accurate. Um, In a sense, everyone born into this planet, man or woman, doesn't matter. If you're born into this earth, you will live forever. It's not a question of will you live forever. It's a question of where are you going to live forever. You're either going to be in the family of God and spend an eternity in His presence, or you're in the only other option which is the family of darkness, and spend eternity, uh, I can't really say it this way, but living in hell. It's the only two options. It might be more accurate to say you can have everlasting life or everlasting death. It's going to be one or the other. He said, I've come to give you everlasting life. It's a different kind of life. It's a different kind. It's a, a quality issue. He came to give us a quality of life that is different than what the unsaved have, than the, the, the members of the other family, the other kingdom. It's a different life. Hmm. So what's he say? He says, when a person receives salvation and puts their faith in him, Jesus says they're born again. They're born of the Spirit, much in the same way that God breathed the breath of life into Adam He breathes a breath of life into you when you're born again. In fact, in the Old Testament, if we look in Hebrew, the word for breath and the word for spirit are one and the same. It's the word ruah. And I don't know if I'm saying it quite right. I'm not a Hebrew scholar any more than I'm a Greek scholar. I'm just dangerous with a concordance. (laughs) But it's the word ruah. Breath and spirit. When he breathed into Adam, the breath of life, he was breathing spirit into him. Same word. He breathed spirit. Same thing. When we receive Jesus as Savior, he breathes spirit into us. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What? Something brand new on the inside of you that was not there before. It's new spirit. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now that's just a step in the process. I do want to take a moment to point out that wasn't necessarily the goal. It was a step in the process. Um, a lot of people think that the goal of salvation is to save us from hell so that we no longer have to spend eternity in hell. Instead, we can go to heaven. And then that's Jesus came to give us that righteousness so that we could go to heaven when we die. Now, yes, he did come to give you that. And yes, that's where he wants you to go. But again, that wasn't the end game. That's not what he was after. It was a necessary step in what he is after. But what is he after? Fellowship. He just doesn't want you in His family. He wants to know you. He wants you to know Him. He wants fellowship with you. I'm not going to take time to turn there this morning, but here in John 3, Jesus said, I've come to give you everlasting life. You go back now to John 17, that the prayer He prayed right before He went to the cross. He said, and here is everlasting life, that they know the one true God, and Jesus, the one He sent he said everlasting life really how does he define it to know me not me to know him <laughs> to know him it's and it's I'm pretty sure it's that greek word gnoscō which is not just to know about but it's an intimate fellowship to know him um i want to go to second corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 he says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? I'm jumping into the context a little bit. He was having a discussion, but I want to look at the point he made. For you, Christian, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, look at verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Who is in you? Whom you have from God and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I don't hear that preached a lot these days. (laughs) That's not really my message this morning. But uh he says that uh, when he paid that price of redemption to purchase your salvation, he purchased you. Oh, I could meddle with that, couldn't I? I won't. It's not my message is horny, but you've been bought at a price. My point is, though, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he is on the inside of you. Now, if we went to the, the epistle of First John, All five chapters. It's one of the driving themes of that whole book. That That's what one of the biggest goals he tried to accomplish with the book of 1 John is to present fellowship to you. I'll look at one verse. Uh, 1 John 1, right in the beginning, verse 3. We're in the introduction of that whole book. He says, "...that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father." and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What He's saying is, we've seen and heard Him, and we have fellowship with Him. And I'm telling you everything I know, so that you too can have fellowship with Him, just like we do. And, and you, you when you keep that in mind as you read that book, a lot of things just come to light. But that's why Jesus came. Ultimately, not just to save you, He wants to walk with you. He's put His Holy Spirit on the inside of you. He wants to fellowship with you. He's the Spirit of Truth who wants to guide you. Now let's go back to Romans 8. So we're talking then about walking with Him, being aware of Him, allowing the Holy Spirit on the inside of you to lead you, to guide you, to counsel you, to do all those things for you. In Romans 8 verse 9, He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. Now he says, if you've not been born again, then he's not in you. And you don't have this, but if you've been born again, then he is in you. One thing he's saying is, you are not limited to natural or flesh awareness. You now have a whole new avenue on the inside of you of awareness. Awareness of your own spirit. Awareness of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Keep in mind, Scripture teaches, the Apostle Paul said, you are spirit. You have a soul, which is your mind, your will, your emotions, your personality, your imaginations, those things that make you uniquely you. That's in your soul. And then you're running around earth in this physical body. I've heard someone call it your earth suit. It's the thing necessary to be able to operate in this planet. It's a natural planet, and you need a natural body to be able to run around in here. But you are spirit running around in this natural body. Think of it this way. You're not a human being having a spirit experience. That's backwards. If you're born again, you are a spirit experience. Being, having a human experience. The human experience is temporary. That spirit part of you is eternal. It's forever. You are a spirit being who happens to be at this point of your existence here in this body. And it's a season. Was it James that said it's a vapor? It goes fast. It's just a vapor. People who are not saved are unaware of the Holy Spirit. I started to say they're unaware of anything spiritual, but that's not entirely true. But they're unaware of the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches us that. There are maybe other spirits they can be aware of. I'm not going to dig into that this morning. But they're not aware of the Holy Spirit. Um, John 14, I'm back to that, and I'm jumping back and forth. John 14, verse 17 Jesus said this. He said, the Spirit of Truth, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. So that's why I say, if you're not born again, you're unaware of the Holy Spirit. You neither see Him nor know Him. But if you've been born again, you know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. Now I'll make, make one little comment. In the moment He said those words... That was accurate. In that moment, prior to the cross, they knew the Holy Spirit because he was with them. They'd been walking with him, especially as close as they walked with Jesus, but he was not in them. Couldn't be yet. Why? Salvation hadn't been purchased yet. Jesus hadn't been to the cross yet. So that's what he said. He said in that exact moment, he says, he's with you and he's will be in you. I almost wish Jesus had said, and he's about to be in you. He's not yet, but he's about to be. What happened? Right after this prayer, we're in John 14, but right later this night, Jesus gets arrested. He goes to the cross. He's in the grave three days. Sunday morning, he comes out of the grave, and one of the first things he does, not the first, but one of the first things when he appears to the disciples in that upper room, he looks at them and he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit, and he blew on them. Now, is that how you get born again? You need someone to blow on you? No. What was he doing? He was painting a picture. I mentioned it a moment ago. He was connecting the dots so that we would see the pattern, and it was a throwback all the way to the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis, when he breathed the breath of life into Adam. He breathed spirit into Adam, and he became a living being. Now he's doing it again, only this time it's the spiritual birth he was telling Nicodemus about, but to connect the dots for us, he actually blew on them. Now, we don't continue to blow on each other, but he was painting a picture. He was connecting dots for us. But what did he say? Receive you the Holy Spirit. Then we get to the New Testament epistles, and what's the Apostle Paul say? <laughs> Holy Spirit's in you. He is in you. What Jesus said he's about to be, now he is. Are you, are you seeing all that? Okay, so now back to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me clarify. I've, I've said this before, but I want to remind you. Um, so many times in our English language, when we use the word dead, we think, uh, not working anymore. Car died. Yeah, it's dead. My golf cart quit working Friday evening. My golf cart's dead. Come on. Quit working. Not operating anymore. I was trying to drive it home. I died on the number five fairway. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I I sensed it starting to sputter. I did a U-turn. I tried to get back to the church property. Nope, I'm dead on the number five fairway. Walk back over, get the lawnmower, tie a rope, and drag my golf cart back to the garage. So that was my fun Friday night. I had a good time. Can't leave carts sitting on the golf course. They get upset. I mean, I'm not even in the rough. I'm right in the middle of the fairway. I mean, it was a target at that point. So anyway, what do I say? Golf cart's dead. All right. We tend to use the word dead that way scripture uses it a little different a lot of times in scripture the word dead means separated when a person dies from in a biblical point of view they become separated from their body are you following me the body stays here when when our loved ones you know pass on and go home to be with the lord the body stays here they go they're separated from that body. To be spiritually dead is what? To be separated from God. So, back in his first sin, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Not that it isn't working, but it's separated from God. Why? It still has the sin nature in it. So the body is separated from him. your spirit is not. Your spirit is alive unto God. But the body still has that sin nature in it. It's dead. So that's kind of what he's talking about here. Verse 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your immortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Now that's an interesting verse that could go a lot of different directions. And I that's one I've been kind of studying. I, I've i heard different things from the old timers. Um, it's a little outside of the context um, all I'll say this morning is that God has fixed the spirit problem and He's working on the flesh problem. We're kind of, all kind of in that same boat in that when you get born again, your spirit is made alive. Your soul is in the process of being made alive. What Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what he's talking about. We renew our mind. Uh, James calls it the saving of the soul. What the saving of our mind, your spirit was recreated when you got born again. Our mind we renew, and this body we're putting up with. It's going to be saved eventually, but it has to be recreated just like your spirit was. Scripture teaches that happens at the resurrection. Are are you following me? So we're in this, this process of salvation. But your spirit is alive unto God, your body's not. And as you realize, that creates a conflict within you. Or your spirit is alive to God, but your body has other ideas sometimes. Your body wants other things. Um, Verse 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We owe God to live for him, but I don't owe this flesh anything. I'm not a debtor to my body. And I don't have to live according to its desires. In fact, look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now again, remember how they use the word death. He says, if you live according to the flesh, and you follow all the desires of your flesh, it will keep you separated from the life you could have in God, from the fellowship that he desires to have with you. Could it actually produce a physical death where you're separated from your body? Eventually it could, but I don't think that's really what he was going for, if you keep this in its context. There are things that, that we would not have in this life. There's an element of Zoe, everlasting life, we would not experience. There's a walk with God and a fellowship with him that we would not get to taste and not get to experience if we're too busy chasing after what our flesh wants. So in that context, it will produce death in us separation. Not saying you won't be his child, but you might not know him very well. Mm. So Paul says there's two ways of living, and if you really study Romans chapter 8, and actually you can back up even further into chapter 7, there's this this, this ongoing discussion he's having of two different ways of living. Living according to the desires and deeds of what your flesh wants, or giving yourself to the desires of your spirit and of what the Holy Spirit wants. It's two different ways. So back to verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What That zoe life, that walk with God, that life as God has it. But he's, there's some things in the flesh we have to put. He uses graphic language. He doesn't. We often just say you need to say no to your flesh, and that's accurate. But he's using much more graphic language. He says you've got to put to death the deeds of the body. And I, I think that's a, a good way to put it. Because sometimes the body thinks it's dying when you say no to it, and it cries, thinking you're killing me here. Well, yeah. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But this whole passage here in Romans 8 goes hand in hand. A nice companion passage is Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, he's again making the same comparison between, in, in Galatians 5, he calls it fruit of the Spirit and works of the flesh. Um, I, I really think they could be synonymous. You could call it fruit of the flesh. And he has a list of them. If you start giving into to these things, it's going to produce a fruit of death in your life. That's what the product will be, the outcome. But if you give to the fruit of the Spirit, here's what this will produce in your life. And it's these same two choices, doing what my Spirit wants, doing what my flesh wants. I sometimes wish, I was thinking about this recently. I often say fruit of the flesh. But I'm like, what if I went the other way? Instead of fruit of the Spirit, we called it works of the Spirit. He called it works of the flesh. How about works of the Spirit? On one level, I think that would be very accurate. Because how many times have you have you realized to walk in love with some people is work. To exercise your patience, that's work. Self-control, that's work. Um, long-suffering, hello. I think you could just as accurately call it Works of the Spirit. We even looked at joy last week. Sometimes to walk in joy is work. That's why James said, count it all joy. Because in that moment, it didn't seem like joy. I'm choosing to count it joy. You know, it's not feeling like it. So what is that? That's work. I think you could just as accurately call it works of the Spirit. But it's the same parallel going on. Works of the flesh, works of the Spirit. So he, he's making this comparison. You can live your life pursuing the desires of flesh, or you can live your life pursuing desires of the Spirit. Or interestingly, we could kind of go back and forth. We're not always 100% one or the other. But he's making this comparison. But he makes the same comparison in Galatians 5 that he does in Romans. He says, if you choose works of the flesh, it will produce death in your life. Or you could say a lack of the God kind of life. It's going to produce wrong things. Um, I could say it this way. There may be things in life that we experience loss because of those choices. I got to thinking about it. Sometimes we think, well, if I make these wrong choices, I'm going to suffer the consequences of those choices, and that might feel like death or that might be loss. But I got to thinking the other way a little bit because I know the nature of our Father Uh, Hebrews says he's a rewarder, and he loves to reward. And one of the chief things he rewards in his children is obedience. He'll reward obedience. He likes to do it. So I got to thinking, if we disobey what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do, and instead we choose a work of the flesh and we go do something else, the loss on another level... Is the reward we would have had if we'd have obeyed? There's something He had in store for us that He wanted to bless us with. A reward, a blessing, a something that He wanted to put on our life because we obeyed Him in something. And now we don't get that. And I've heard preachers say that in His mercy, He so many times doesn't tell us what that was and I get it, and that does seem to be the experience. I think in his mercy, he's not telling us all the things we could have had if we were just better at listening to him and better at following him. I think it probably would overwhelm us, maybe even cause us to be a little depressed. What? I could have had that? Oh, man, you know? And I I still think when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, I think that's the kind of stuff that's going to come rolling out. Here was my plan. Here's what you could have had. Here's what you chose instead. I think, I think that probably will come rolling out there. But there's a part of me that thinks in this life, Lord, show me a couple of those things that I could have had that I didn't because I made the wrong choice. It seems to me that that would motivate Maybe I'd be a little more motivated to make right choices if I could see some of that connected to it. He doesn't do that much. I won't say he doesn't do that at all. And I just, I'm resting in the fact that he knows a lot more than I do. And there's probably good reason why he does or doesn't. But just in my mind, I'm thinking, boy, that would motivate, wouldn't it? I don't want to suffer loss of things I could have had if I'd have done better. Anyway, that being said, I want to go back to Romans 8, and I want to look at verse 14. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, what's he differentiating in this verse? I'm going to point out, Romans, the whole book, was written to Christians. It says clear back in chapter 1, he was writing to the church in Rome. His audience was people who were already saved. This letter was not written to the unsaved. Now, why do I point that out? He's not trying to tell you you need to be born again. His audience is already saved. I've heard a lot of people say that in Romans chapter 7, that he was talking about an experience of being unsaved, and then the solution in Romans chapter 8 was you get born again and all that goes away. That was not my experience Romans chapter 7, and if you're familiar with the passage, that's where Paul's talking about, I want to do the right thing, but instead I do the wrong thing, and I don't know why I did the wrong thing, because I wanted to do the right thing, but I got this thing within me in this struggle, and he says, what miserable man am I? Who's going to save me from this body of death? Does that ring a bell? That's Romans chapter 7. That's not a picture of an unsaved person. That's a picture of a carnal Christian. A person who is saved, and yet they're still struggling with the old nature. And the answer isn't get born again. Oh, I wish it was. How great would it be that all you had to do was pray a prayer? Ask Jesus into your heart and All those wrong desires just went away like magic. And you no longer had any temptation to ever do anything wrong because you got saved. And everything in Romans 7 just disappeared from your life. I wish. How great would that That wasn't my experience. When it looks in your faces, I don't think that was your experience either. You know, we've all had some moments in Romans 7 where you knew you were in that that struggle of I want to do this, but man, my flesh wants to do that. And too many times, uh, flesh wins. And I, 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 use food as an example. Flesh wins and that cheesecake's gone. <laughs> you know? And don't get on the scale. Uh-uh. But you don't, uh, you understand what I mean. And it, it could be any number of situations, but that struggle. Alright? Well, the answer isn't get born again. The answer is learn to follow the spirit. Back in verse 14, he says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God. So what he's contrasting is, in the church, we have Christians who are led by the Spirit, and we have Christians who are not. We have a lot of Christians living in chapter 7. I'm not saying this is accurate. It seems like the number of Christians living in chapter 7 is increasing. I could be wrong. It's just an observation, and maybe it's maybe I'm becoming more aware. I don't know. There's a lot of people struggling there. He's trying to give us the answer in chapter 8. So what's he saying? There's people who are led by the Spirit, and there's people who are not. Now, I've pointed out before, and I'm going to do it again, that word sons, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That word sons is the Greek word weos, And it doesn't mean child. It means full grown, mature, adult son. So, what's he saying? As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the ones that grew up. These are the ones that developed. That's how I say this connects kind of nicely with the series we just finished on growing up. What's a big part of growing up? Learning to be led by Him learning to follow the Holy Spirit. But I want to say this about that. Sometimes when we think about being led by God and and getting direction from Him, we tend to think about the big decisions in life. And we should. You know, the sometimes literally life-changing decisions of, do I pack up my family and move three states to take that new job? Because you know that's going to come with both pros and cons. And is, God, is this the right move for me and my family? Should I do this? Should I take that new job? You know, should I marry that person? Lord God, help me now. You know, should I do this career or like a teen's face? What, what's my major need to be in college? What's my course of life? The big decisions. And so we take time and we get on our knees and we seek the Lord and all that's, all that's right. That's good. We should do that. I think what we overlook is the little things, the daily things. Are we led by Him in the moment-to-moment things? Now, I'm not saying, okay, you're headed to the restaurant, you're going to order something off the menu, and you need to take three hours of fasting and prayer to seek the Lord about what you should have for lunch today. I'm not saying that at all. No, no, no. Yet at the same time, do you ever take just a moment To listen on the inside before you order? He might lead you that day. I know it sounds good, but don't get the chicken. He might know something you don't know. I'll give you a practical example. How many things in life do we do just because it's what we've always done? It's habit. It's routine. It's the way we've always done it. How many of you, especially if you work out of town, how many of you drive the same route to work every day, without fail, because that's what you drive. How many of you take a moment before you head to work in the morning just to check on the inside, see if he's saying anything to you? Now, nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of 100, nothing. And if you got nothing, go. But what about that one time where there's that little prompt on the inside saying, Take a different road. I've heard this example. There's a uh, there's a, a, a pastor that I like listening to who pastors a church in Minneapolis. How many of you remember, this is several years ago now, when they had that bridge collapse in Minneapolis? I remember that. I had a family member on that bridge as it started to go. She said it was rumbling and felt weird. And her reaction, praise God, put on the turn signal, got in the left lane and floored it. Said she watched the bridge drop in her rear view mirror. That experience, so I was listening to that pastor not long after that experience and they said one of the first things they did was they sent out a mass email to the whole church. Is everyone okay? Was anyone affected by that bridge? And turned out they were good because people died when that bridge collapsed. But the church was okay. Then they said, the testimony started coming back in from the church members. People said, just had a funny, a funny feeling on the inside, not necessarily words, just had a, a something on the inside that said, don't drive to work that way. Some people said, had a, something on the inside said, don't go to work today. Be careful with that one. A lot of people think they get that one. <laughs> nope, God's telling me not to go to work today. Well, be careful, be careful. Okay. But they had one person in their church said, you know what? It's been almost I guess, three or four months now. Every time I come near that bridge, I got an uneasy feeling on the inside. And the Lord was just not in words, not saying heard the voice of God, you know, no dreams or visions, just that. That unsettledness on the inside, and for three or four months now, had been driving down to the next bridge to get across that river to get to work, it was adding fifteen to twenty minutes to their drive to work. But they couldn't get past that unsettledness on the inside and wondering, God, what's this about? Why? Why am I unsettled with that bridge? Till the day it fell. And so I, that's why I say, do we check with Him on the little things? The, the, what's you Kyle quotes a lot I quote a lot that proverb that says trust in the Lord with all your heart lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways how many in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path what's that word acknowledge mean check in with Him acknowledge that you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is He saying anything How many times have we missed him not because we willfully wanted to do the other thing and we just wanted to go that way even though he was saying go this way. No, no, no. How many times did we miss him because we didn't even bother to ask? We weren't even thinking about him. We didn't even check in with him. We didn't need him. But we already knew what we were going to do. That's the way I do it every day. That's how I've been doing it for the last 20 years. It's how my daddy did it. It's how my granddaddy did it. It's how my great granddaddy did it. That's how I do it. Well, that that might be okay most of the time, but what about that once in a while? Are you acknowledging him? Are you checking in with him? Paul says this is a difference between a mature Christian and a, can I say it, immature. Between a child Christian or a grown-up Christian. What? Learning to follow Him. Not just in the big decisions. In the little ones. Now again, I'm not saying you need to pray for an hour before you head to work in the morning. No, no, no. But there is a lifestyle of just taking a moment, check the inside. Living with an awareness of Him in you. He is in you. Hmm. well, I probably better head to a conclusion. I'm going to jump over a couple things. For as many, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We can't grow and develop and mature as Christians without learning to be led by Him. Without learning not only to be led, to yield to Him to recognize how He's leading us. So, okay, I'll start steering in, a, in the direction of a conclusion. But I want to go to verse 15. I'm not changing topics. Verse 14, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Very next verse, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Again, relationship. Um, that the Greek words there translated "abba," father. That's intimate. Um, some translations, I think, do it this way. It would almost be more meaningful in English if you translate translated that as "daddy." You know, sometimes we're not talking the formal father. No, this is "daddy." It's intimate. It's relationship. It's personal. But he says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. He says, when you got born again, you didn't get the spirit of bondage. We're not going through that again. It's different now. But he hasn't changed topics. He's still talking about being led by the spirit, following your spirit on the inside, and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And then he gives us an indicator. Be careful. You've been freed from The bondage of fear. He says, we're not going through that again. It's different now. So in context, what's he saying? Don't be led by fear. You be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't you be led by fear. If you're following fear, you're not following God. Now, we could try to make this be some big, horrible thing, but a lot of times, again, it's those little things every day. How many little things in our life do we not do because of fear? I'll give you just a real simple one that I bet all of us could relate to in one way or another. How many times has the Holy Spirit prompted you, prompted me, to share Jesus with someone and we didn't do it because we were afraid of what they might say? We were afraid of what Coworkers might say, we were afraid of what people might say. We were afraid of the outcome. So were we being led by the Spirit? No, we let fear lead us another way. There's the simple everyday one. I, not necessarily try to talk about the big things. How many times is the Holy Spirit trying to lead us down a path to do something, to say something, to go this direction, and we don't want to do it because we're afraid of how it might turn out? Or we start thinking things like, "Well, I can't do that. Well, that's just not who I am. That's not my thing." What'll happen? What will people think? What will people say? What's going to happen to me? And all these different excuses, all these different variations of fear that we use to not follow Him. And He warns us about that. It's just interesting. I, I won't want to. I don't want to repreach it all, but it's another one of those situations of how many things do we miss out on because he was trying to lead us somewhere which will always come with reward, but because of fear, we go the other direction. I'm not going to repreach all that, but it's the same type of thing. God's not holding out on us. We went the other way. <laughs> fear. You remember J. Iris? We don't have time to turn there. I'm not going to repreach the whole story, but do you remember the account of J. Iris? He was, a, um, he was a preacher, I think. He was one of the leaders in a synagogue and his daughter was about to die. So he's the one that went and found Jesus and he said, Jesus, my daughter is about to die, but if you'll come pray for her, she will live. That was his faith talking and he believed it and Jesus didn't disagree. He says, all right. Where is she? Let's go. And so they are walking across. I believe it was Capernaum. Don't hold me to that one, but they're walking across town to go get to Jairus's daughter. Halfway through or somewhere in the journey, they get distracted by that woman. Remember her? The one who took her healing without asking? How rude. She was the one who snuck into the crowd, came up behind Jesus and grabbed the hem of his prayer shawl, didn't ask. Didn't say, Oh, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. No, she didn't say a word. She tiptoed in when no one was looking, kind of got in the crowd, grabbed his shawl, received her healing. And she felt it. She felt the healing power of God come out of him into her, and she knew in her body, I got it. And she was trying to now slip right back out and leave without anybody knowing what happened. Problem is, Jesus felt that power go out of him. He didn't know where it went, but he felt it leave. And he stopped the whole procession and said, who touched me? Remember this story? And they're all like, what are you talking about? We all touched you. We're walking down the road bumping each other in a crowd. He's like, what are you talking about? And he says, no, 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 no. Someone touched me. And what he meant was someone touched me with a touch of faith, and I felt the power of God go out of me. Who was it? Well, he figured out who it was, and he started talking to that woman. He turned it into a teaching moment, not only for her, but for all of us. It's an awesome story. But while he's talking to her, people came from Jairus' house and said, You took too long. Your daughter's dead. Leave Jesus alone. It's too late. You're bothering him now. There's nothing he can do. And if, I think it's Mark's account, but if you look at it, it says when Jesus, who's talking to the woman, but when he hears that report, he stops what he's doing. He turns to Jairus with intention, with, he's hurried and intentional before Jairus can even respond. And he gets right in front of him and he says, don't be afraid. Only believe that, that word believe. Um, Again, I'm not a Greek scholar. (laughs) It's the word pastoio. It comes from the root word pistis, which is translated faith. What I have seen is it appears that in Greek they use the same word both as a noun and a verb. In English, we tend to not do that. So my observation has been whenever they bring that word into our language as a noun, they use the word faith. When it comes in as of a verb, we use the word believe. but It's the same word. Just in English, apparently we do things a little different than Greek. But it's the same word. It means the same thing. And he's saying... Don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid, stay in faith because the two are opposite and they will produce different things in you. If you choose faith, it's going to produce life. If you choose fear, it's going to produce death in Jairus's case, literally, physically. We've seen that. Well, we're in the same boat then. He's telling us, "Don't be led by fear." Fear will always lead you the wrong direction. you would be led by the Spirit. Are you following me? Okay, so I'm going to wrap this thing up. Learn to recognize in your own life how the devil tries to trip you up. Learn to recognize those little things where he's using fear to cause you to hesitate and not follow God. Learn to realize what's going on. Recognize, all right, that's just the enemy trying to stop me. You, think of it this way. what What is faith in, in, a, in one broad definition? Trust in God. What's fear? Trust in the devil. For a lot of people, fear is having more trust in the devil's ability to do harm in your life than they have trust in God's ability to do good. And because they have more faith in the devil than they do God, they follow the fear. And they let it lead them. And some people do a lot of crazy things in the name of fear. Are you following me? We have to overcome fear on every level to be led by the Spirit of God. And a big part of that comes when you just you just trust Him. You just trust Him. The good part As you learn to follow him in the little things, that trust grows. You begin to have a, a, not a resume, but a history. You just begin to remember, you know, he helped me here, and he helped me here, and he helped me here. Why would it not work out this time? It grows, it builds, it snowballs as you walk with him. But learn to recognize how the enemy tries to trip you up. Things like, I I just can't do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. How will I ever make ends meet? How will I ever be able to do something like that? Or what do people think? All all those various questions the devil will put in your mind. All right, let's, let's wrap this up. Back to verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Wouldn't it be great if it stopped there? What's the next word? If... You ever grumble when you come across that word? Ah, oh, here we go. He says we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if, if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. Now, I've heard a lot of people say a lot of things about suffering and try to use this verse to justify all kinds of bad things in their life, saying, I'm just suffering for Jesus. There's a whole lot of suffering they're doing on their own. What's one of the basic rules of Bible interpretation? Context. Don't go lifting verses out of their context and building doctrines that can say all kinds of crazy things. What's the context? We're in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about being led by your spirit, not given in to, what did he say? Put to death the deeds of the flesh. There are a whole lot of desires that my body has that I have to put to death. And obviously that's pretty clear if we start rattling off sinful desires. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you all the things my body's been tempted to sin, but it doesn't even have to be sins. There's a lot of just natural things that my body would, my body would rather sit on the couch on its butt, do nothing but eat, sugar all day, and play games or watch TV, right? What's my body need to do? Eat some healthy stuff and exercise, right? And sometimes I have to put to death those desires because they're not going to produce life in me. They're going to produce extra pounds and maybe shorten life, understand? Practical. So in this first sin, what did he say? I got to thinking about that this morning. I actually had a day last week where I craved vegetables. Can you believe it? I'll say this about the body. It will naturally crave wrong things, but if you do what Scripture says and you begin to train your body, you can actually train it to want right things. Now, it's work. But I did... Most of the table was having French fries. And I looked at that menu and I said, no, give me that tomato and cucumber salad. It just sounded good. And it was. What is going on with me? I passed on French fries and ate tomatoes and cucumbers. It can happen. But my point is, there's a lot of things my flesh would rather do. Wrong desires. And what's he say? If indeed we suffer if with him. What's the context of Romans chapter 8? put to death the deeds of the flesh. There will be times when your flesh wants to do or not do, and you're telling your flesh, oh, no, no, you get out there and exercise. Get on those shoes and start running. Get off that couch. And your flesh is going to think you're killing it. And there will be a degree of suffering. You are putting to death deeds of the body, and you are following the leading of the Spirit on the inside of you. Are you saying the Holy Spirit would lead us to exercise? hate to break it to you. (laughs) Yeah. Paul said that uh, exercising the body profits little. Correct. Compared to spiritual profit. But what did he say? There's still profit there. It's not unprofitable. It's just not as profitable as spiritual things. But there's still profit. Oh, I don't need to get off on all that. But what am I saying, though? What's the suffering that we need to suffer with Jesus? Putting to death the deeds of the body. Saying no to some of the things our flesh wants to do. Even when our flesh thinks, you're killing me here. I'm going to die. Your flesh starts crying on you. But no, you be led by your spirit. Now, if we'll do that, go back to that verse again. And if children then heirs, you have an inheritance from God. And he distinguishes here, you also have a joint inheritance with Jesus if you'll put to death the deeds of the body and start growing up, learning to be led by him, learn to follow his leading through your life. And then he tax what's on the in there? That we may also be glorified together. That's a whole nother message. So many times when we think about glory, we actually call heaven glory. You know, someday in glory we'll get to do this or that or we'll be free of this or free of that. And I'm not disagreeing. That's not really how Scripture uses the word glory. There's a glory in the here and now. There are degrees of the glory of God that we can experience. It's connected to that Zoe life. But how do we get to it? That verse just told us. We start crucifying putting to death the deeds of the body learning to follow the Holy Spirit not just into big things acknowledging him in all things learning to live a spirit led lifestyle and where's that going to take us right into inheritance and Zoe life which includes degrees of the glory of God in the here and now somebody say amen amen